Good morning. We're going to start with two um, songs this morning. Now, the first of those, uh, in the main, this morning, what we're, going to, we're going to concentrate on about 200 years of history. So, those of you who didn't like history at school, I'm sorry about that. But you'll see that it's got a really important point to it at the end. So, so please bear with me through that. Anyway, um, we're going to start by, by praising God uh, for what he is and for his relationship with us. Uh, who can know the mind of our creator? We stand in awe before God. But one of the most awesome things is, um, that, as the third verse says, you've seen the end from the beginning, you've been before the world began, you've reached to me within my darkness, and in the light of mercy, now I see. Because we're going to be talking a lot this morning about mercy and grace, which is right at the heart of what God is. So let's worship him and stand in awe before God. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that the gap between you and us is in one sense so large, that you are so awesome, that we can't even begin to understand so much of what you're about. But we thank you too, Lord, that what you want is a relationship with us, that you want to live with us, that you want to transform us to be like you. That you want to work on our hearts and take away their stoniness and turn them to, turn us to creatures that worship you in spirit. Lord, we pray that we will feel your presence here this morning that we will be touched, touched by the knowledge of your grace and touched, Lord, by a desire to make our lives different because we know your grace. Amen. So just by way of kind of warning you what we're going to do this morning, I'm I'm going to tell you a, a little, as I say, a little bit of history in the form of a story. Um, uh, most of it centres uh, around, the first part of it centres around about a century uh, of time, um, starting in 1703. Uh, the second part takes on from there a little bit uh, later. And then e- eventually we'll, we'll, uh, we'll end up uh, where we are now. Uh, and, and you may have seen that I had a, a title up before, uh, which, was, which was called... For, for this morning, which was called Amazing Grace. So um, maybe those of you who know some history might be able to sort of start thinking about some of the pieces of the jigsaw they're going to fit in. And if not, well, then you're going to have an enlightening morning. Uh, first of all, Alex is going to let us know uh, what's going on um, in the church that we need to know about. Thanks, Becky Sutton, for preparing the care news. So, the care news this week. Uh, Mary is still in Trafford General. Um, she's going to Christie's for an appointment tomorrow. They believe that it m- fairly likely she has another lymphoma that will require further treatment. It's not certain yet, but that's what they think. Jack says that Mary's feeling quite positive that her pain is much better controlled since she's been in hospital. So let's pray that God will be present and comforting 
for Jack and Mary and should any further surgery be required that he will act through the medical team at the hospital to bring healing to Mary. Uh, Dorothy is making progress. It's good to know. She had some good news from the hospital this week. The operation was successful and she won't need any further treatment. She is very tired still and she finds that a bit frustrating, which <laughs> I'm sure we can all imagine. But otherwise she's doing very well. So let's praise and thank our great God for his amazing healing hand on Dorothy. I spoke to John, Congo John, this morning. At the moment he's still in Bukavu, but he plans to return to Kinshasa in the next few weeks. Uh, he says partly because he doesn't like Bukavu. And I imagine that he's got some pretty tough memories in Bukavu. His mum does seem to be quite a bit better though. She seems to be recovering from her illnesses, which from what I get from John, seems to be mostly kind of poverty related. So please continue to pray for John. Pray that he'll have a safe flight home because he says there's quite a lot of plane crashes on internal flights in the Congo. He said maybe it's old planes, maybe the pilots aren't very good. So pray for John. Oh, no, no, I spoke to uh, Rachel Curtin this morning. Anne, her mum, Anne Curtin, is going into hospital a week tomorrow to have um, a tumour and her kidney, where the tumour is, removed. So again, please pray for God's healing to be present at the surgeon's skillful hands. And let's not forget our brothers and sisters, members of the Bethel that we rarely see, uh, for whatever reason that is. Let's keep them in our prayers for God to be present for them, that they will feel his love, whichever part of God's family they end up growing with. And last of all, let's not forget the fast approaching due date for Becky and Julian. Please keep them in your prayers. If anyone has anything to add, care news-wise, I will do a pastoral prayer. Well, let's pray together. Father God, you are great and you are merciful and we are amazed at the healing which you bring. And we praise you and thank you for the progress that Dorothy has made. We also ask again for you to be with <clears throat> these other people that we've talked about, people that need your hand to be present, that need to feel your love and your care. Lord, I lift up to you Jack and Mary and the troubles they've been through this last year. Keep them strong, Lord. Help them to, to know you're with them, to feel that you're with them. And I pray that, that you will find a way to bring healing and restoration to Mary. Lord, we think of Anne as well. It's never... It's never a good thing to be going into hospital for surgery and we pray that if she is anxious or worried that you'll be with her and you'll comfort and, and give her peace. And Father, look after our brother John. We pray that one day we will see him again. And if that's not before...
Jesus returns, then keep him close to you, keep him safe and keep him strong in the work that you have for him to do in the Congo. Lord, we pray that you'll look after all of us and and build us together as a family to be able to serve you better. We ask the prayer in the strong name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, a bit later on this morning, we, we're going to um, sing uh, the hymn um, Amazing Grace, um, or, or as it's actually called, Faith's Review and Expectation. Um, or at least that's what John Newton uh, called it uh, when, he, when he published it in 1779. Um, a lot of you will probably know, um, hold your hands up if you don't, that, that, uh, that uh, John Newton was formerly uh, a slave a captain of a slave ship and it was part of his process of com- conversion that, that um, led him to write the hymn some years later of course as with all of these things the full story is a deal more complex uh, than the kind of headline bits uh, that you get and the, and the whole um, issue of the writing of the, uh, of the song is integrated with the movement to abolish the slave trade um, the rise of the Methodist movement uh, in the UK uh, and this wholly sort of novel view in the 18th century that salvation came through grace. Now, it may seem strange to think that this was a new idea. In a few moments, Sheila's going to read us Ephesians 2 where it's stated absolutely in black and white that that's how it is. Um, But after she's done that, I'm going to just give you a little bit of church history that comes to tell us how sort of Effectively, the message got lost, uh, and uh, and how it got refound. So, Sheila, if you could read um, Ephesians two for us, please. Ephesians chapter two. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, 
excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to us who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. I can cover the first few thousand years of human history in a, in a couple of sentences. We've only got to look at, at the way that sort of God um, uh, dealt with Israel. That they had a job, and their job was to bring people to God, and they didn't do it. Uh, and you know, and if you look at them, uh, they they had these occasional revivals, and they came back and they tried to do things that were right for God, and then they slipped away again, and they got things wrong. Uh, and so it should come as no surprise to us. Uh, really, to, to find that exactly the same seems to be true uh, of us as Christians trying to serve God. That, um, you know, we, uh, we, we get it right for a couple of years and then people sort of um, drift off and uh, just get slack, basically. Um, so, um, you know, you go back to 30 AD, Jesus, uh, um, when Jesus died and rose, and then a few years after that, Paul's converted. Um, and then one of the first things that seems to happen is that, that people seem to try and codify what it is that they're believing. Um, there's a suggestion that um, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse, uh, uh, verses 3 and 4 um, is actually a, a sort of saying that was part of what people said, which is, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It's a little, it's a f- little formula that kind of gets... Um, said that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So if you like, there's the first embryonic, somebody putting it in, into a nice little nutshell that, that, uh, that uh, makes it easy for people. And that was, that was definitely sort of circulating in the, in the 40s AD. So, so that had become codified quite early on. And then you've got you know, a whole series of other creeds, each of which, in turn, from the Apostolic Creed and the uh, Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed, creep further and further away from what Scripture actually, in its basics, says. Because people start saying, well, uh, uh, we need to explain what we mean by that. We need to wrap it up. We need to do something else. Um, It's reckoned that the Gospel had spread as far as India by 52 AD. 
there's some fairly good evidence, um, uh, and you know, history would tell you that it was uh, that it was Thomas uh, who moved east with, with the gospel, uh, and uh, and certainly uh, by uh, 100 uh, AD, uh, the gospel was being preached in in Asia, in Europe, in Africa. Um, which is which is pretty amazing, really, when you think that there were no mobile phones, uh, there were no planes. Not that that makes much difference to us at the moment, but um, and uh, there arose fairly widespread persecution. The persecution ended in 311. So um, at that time, uh, you know, there was a, a decree through the Roman Empire to end that. Also, part of this creep. I'm sorry if I'm boring you, but please bear with me. Um, in 301 AD, Christianity had become the national uh, uh, authorised religion of Armenia. Um, in 325, it was the national religion of Ethiopia. In 327, it was the national uh, religion of Georgia. And then it became an official uh, religion of the Roman Empire in 380. Although, to be fair, it had pretty much been accepted since 312, with a small lapse when there was, when there was a, um, a reversion to, to paganism. But what's happened during this time is that the gospel has gone from being a gospel about love and about the love of God to being a gospel by which people impose power. It's a way of controlling the masses. It's a way of the people in power staying in power. I'm sounding a bit Marxist here, but let me. But um, but that's that's what's happening. Um, The books that make up the the New Testament, pretty much uh, the debate about what should be included, what shouldn't be included, had finished by about 200. Um, But again, um, you know. There had to be some decree passed by somebody in about three, in the fourth century to say this is definitely what makes up, up, up the Bible. And then there started to be a kind of focus, really, uh, on heresy, on the fact that some people didn't believe exactly the same thing as other people, that there was a need to separate people out and to stop some of these silly things that people said. Um, uh, and, and, and to close down the debate. And that, it seems to me, was the most dangerous thing. Not that some of the ideas that people held were clearly wrong. Those that held that, you know, Jesus was just a man and had no divine uh, uh, origin, was not uh, the son of God, was just a good man. Uh, technically it's called docetism, for those who, or docetism, uh, depending on which pronunciation you want. Um, a few hundred years later, the main uh, um, theological basis of the split between the Eastern and Western Church was about the relationship between God and Jesus, as to whether Jesus was subordinate to, to the Father or not. In reality, the East-West split was about power and about which bishop was really in charge. But, you know, they had to have something to hang it on, and that was the, the, the main thing. In, in 1100... There was a uh, there was a, a big uh, argument because up until then um, it had been up to the local kings 
to appoint bishops, which just shows about this power structure. And then in 1100, the Pope said, no, that's my job, you can't do it. It's not about, you know, which another power shift. Then we kind of start to get the rise. So, so, you know, pretty much in a thousand years, Christianity has gone from something that is uh, uh, the gospel for ordinary people about their relationship with God to something that's got a whole hierarchy of power structure in place and something's got lost in that process. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to focus on the on the beliefs and, and and whatever, but something in that process has been lost because that isn't what it's about. And so then we start to get the rise of the the, the first sort of inklings uh, of Protestantism in the late uh, Middle Ages. Early dissenters like John Wycliffe and John Huss. Uh, called for a restoration of primitive Christianity to get back to what its roots were like. And they and their followers were driven underground uh, because of the persecution against that. Um, people like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, all um, you know, wanted to, to, to change, uh, to get rid of some of the worst excesses of the way things were. None of these people thought that what they wanted to do was to split the church up and to have denominations. But all of them, that's what they were forced into doing because the people in power didn't want to listen. Uh, Because what did it do? It weakened their power base. I don't believe it was about belief. It was about who's in control. And so you th- then we come. I told you I was going to start in 1703, and I lied slightly because I've just br- brought us up to there. Um, 1703 uh, was the year in in which uh, John Wesley was born. Uh, and again, um, the uh, the Methodist uh, um, revival, if you like, in in the United Kingdom, what they uh, what they called the Great Awakening uh, in the second half of the 18th century. Um, was primarily centred around look, the people in charge are not doing what's right. Um, if you looked at England at that time, and I, I have no reason to suppose that England was that different from France or Germany or lots of other places. I just happen to be better acquainted with what was happening in England. Um, the country was nominally Christian. But all of its uh, leaders um, uh, Anybody who had any money spent their time drinking, eating, playing cards. That was what life, that was what life was about. If, if you were a, um, a politician or, or whatever, you be- belonged to a series of clubs and you would spend every evening playing cards for money uh, whilst drinking amounts that these days most people would, would fail to hold... <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and eating your, your, yourself silly. Um, there were, to the extent that there were, there were a, a number of prime ministers in, in that time who were completely lampooned by the cartoonists because of their enormous size, um, because of the amount that they, they, they'd eaten. And, and people saw no connection between the fact that they went to church on a Sunday and the rest of their lives. 
And then that kind of, that movement sort of lost a bit of momentum. So, we come to the 19th century, and there's another whole rush of people saying, we've got to change what we, what we do. Uh, what's sometimes called the second great awakening in, in the 19th century. Um, sorry, I should have said one of the things that came out of the first great awakening in the 18th century was, was the fact that uh, we uh, are uh, saved by grace. I've got, a, I've got a quote here from John Wesley said, whatever else somebody did to him, he would not give up the doctrine of an inward and present salvation by faith itself uh, based on the grace of God. And the Methodists themselves split uh, because of whether they were influenced by uh, Arvinism or, uh, or um, Calvinism. So let me just, so here we are. That's kind of all of the influences that, that come down on us. You know, we, we kind of think, are we just sort of uh, in, invented um, our, our beliefs for ourselves? Um, but, you know, we're influenced by the early church, the, the Anabaptists in the kind of 14th century, the revival. And, and, uh, and I think um, I tend to, to view that, that, that our roots come from the Arminist uh, leg of the Methodists. For those of you who, uh, who don't know what that is, um, the Calvinists think that everything is preordained, it really doesn't matter what you do, God's made his mind up, and uh, you're either in or you're out. And, 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 and that's a, it's all preordained. Arminism says God's grace is open to anybody... He extends his grace to everyone and whether you want to accept it or not is up to you. Uh, I, I think, who, who thinks we come from that route? I, th- I think we come from that route. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Um, a bit of reluctance to actually raise the hands there. Okay. Um, so let me just read you um, a, a few uh, verses um, from what Sheila ra- read earlier. Uh, Ephesians 2 Verse 4. But, he says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him and the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, this, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So just take those those points. It's... um, it's from because of God's love. Uh, God is rich in mercy. And that isn't a, a New Testament doctrine. That's how God revealed himself to Moses. And uh, made us alive. So how could the church, uh, could this have come to, as a kind of surprise to most of the church in the 18th century that that, that had been, been lost? And the other thing that that God tells us, not here, I mean he says we're his workmanship, but it says elsewhere that we are to be holy, like God is holy. 
the, the word, the, the Hebrew word um, that's used in the Old Testament, when it talks about being holy, uh, the word means clean. And the, the, new, the Greek word probably means just sort of different. Now, a lot of people have suggested that it, that it means separate in the sense of keeping yourself away from everything else. And I, I, I don't think that's really implied by the original word. It's something we've come to believe that we have, that the only way that we can be clean for God is to just get rid of all of the influences uh, around us that do that. And, and let's face it, the logical route, once you've decided that that's what you've got to do, is to end up, uh, you know, as a hermit on top of a pole uh, for, for, for 40 years, which is what people did in sort of like the second or third century, because it was the only way that they could see to make themselves separate. You'd have, if you want to be holy, if that's what you think holy is, you've got to throw away your mobile phone so that the, the people outside can't contact you. You've got to, you, you've got to cut off the television. You've got to cut off uh, all, all of your things with outside life because any one of those things can corrupt you. And that isn't what holiness is about. Holiness is about being different and making a difference. And that's why we're called to be light and salt to the world. Because we're not different just for ourselves. We're different so that we can make a difference. And in Isaiah, this is what God tells us, is that the consequences of... Uh, so I'm, I'm going in Isaiah 57. I'm going to go in at verse 14. Isaiah 57, verse 14. Build up... Build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. And I think sometimes, historically the church has been guilty, and maybe sometimes we as individuals are guilty of putting obstacles in people's way. Of saying, well you can, you can become a Christian, but only if you jump through these five hoops. Um, you can, uh, you can come to Jesus, said the disciples, but not if you're a child, not if you're a tax collector. Oh, Matthew was a tax collector. Well, apart from Matthew. And, um, and a lot of the time, Jesus has to tell his disciples to get rid of the obstacles that they're putting in people's way. So, this is what the High and Lofty One says, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God says, although I'm different, although I'm clean, and, and you can see me as up there, I'm also here. And not just here, but all around the world with the people who need my presence. If we are contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. He goes on during the rest of the chapter to say he's not pleased with the way that some people behave. He was enraged by their, by their sinful greed. Um, but 
he's going to guide and restore and comfort and create praise that he's going to bring peace or unity um, to those who are far and near I'll heal them because the process of healing is God's he brings the grace he brings the mercy and you and I have to be open to it and sometimes we sit here and we kind of go oh, well I've, I've accepted I've accepted God and that's the end of the story but you see God doesn't stop working with us he keeps on working with us because he wants to transform us from glory to glory so what we're going to do now is we're going to take bread and wine because I want you to take I want you to take bread and wine and remember Jesus thinking about God's grace to us and what he's done and how he's working with us and then after we've taken bread and wine I want to talk to you again a bit about what does that mean so we're going to, we're going to now sing um, Amazing Grace Dear Holy Father Father as Pete has said in some senses you appear to be such a long way away and so much bigger than us and yet you're here with us because you love us you're here I know Father because you want to be here you want to be here among us with each one of us I know you do I know Father that you have always wanted to be near your people wanted to live with them you are the God of grace you are the God who loves us the God who gives us everything we need you are the God who gives us life and more than that gives us yourself and wants us to be part of you you are the God who gave us your son Jesus thank you <laughs> thank you seems a small word father Lord Jesus thank you We read that your Father, Lord, raised us up with you and seated us, Lord Jesus, with you in the heavenly realms. That's where we are. We are raised up. We are alive and you are alive with an eternal life. And we've come to break bread and to drink wine, not to remember you as a dead Lord, but very much a living and alive and working Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord, we're going to take some of this bread now and we're going to pass it round and just take a little bit. And this bread talks to us about, about a wholeness on this plate now this morning we've got a whole loaf and it talks about us being joined together in you Lord Jesus 
that in some sense we are your body. Lord, thank you. Father, thank you. Help us now not to be sad, not to be sort of remorseful, not to think about your dying, but to think about you living with us and joining us together. Help us, Lord, in this little feast to rejoice and to celebrate your love. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. But just like Jesus shared bread with his disciples the night before he died, we're going to share it now together to remember his life. O oh Lord God, it is with joy and with gratitude that we come before you now in thanksgiving for this cup of wine. And, Father, it is because of this cup of wine and because of the bread that we've just shared together that you welcome us with open arms into your family, each and every one of us, here in this church, and you extend that invitation to everyone on this planet, should they choose to accept it. And, Father... We thank you and we can search and search the entirety of the English language to try and find some word that would express our gratitude and our thankfulness for your grace. But nothing seems to, seems to do, seems to satisfy. Your grace that saw you give everything for us. Your grace that saw you give your one and only Son. Your grace which caused you the pain as he was murdered on the cross by man. And Lord Jesus, we can barely begin to imagine the pain of that cross. I sometimes try and put myself in the, the place of your disciples or, or your followers who saw it from afar off. We can only begin to imagine the, the pain and the suffering and how it must have been so tempting to show the world there and then that you were, that you are God's Son the King of the Jews. It must have been so tempting, Lord Jesus, but in spite of the pain, you carried on because you had a mission to fulfil. Out of your love for each and every one of us, you went through that pain and that suffering to the point of death so that we, a wretch like me, can have life. And it is your blood, Lord Jesus, that washes over us 
that cleanses us and gives us the life. And we rejoice as we take this cup of wine now in thanks and in gratitude. And so, Father, please hear this prayer of thankfulness, this prayer of joy as we rejoice in the victory that Jesus won on that cross. Thank you for this cup, this cup of life. In Jesus' name, Amen. Words were written by uh, Isaac Watts, who lived from 1674 to 1748. So the, the year that he died was actually the year that um, John Newton, who the previous hymn had been about, um, was written by, was being rescued from slavery in Africa because part of his story is that he was um, uh, sold into slavery himself before he became a slave captain. Um, and where he, on the year in which he converted to Christianity when he was rescued. The tune we're going to sing it to was written by somebody who lived during the 18th century and across what I'm going to talk about for about five minutes after, after we've, we've sung it. When I survey the wondrous cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine that we're offering far too small? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But after, the, after Isaac Watts wrote these words, that isn't what England was like at all. We, we touched before about what it was like, you know, at the top, eating, drinking, whatever, and that's exactly what it was like at the bottom as well. Um, the Hogarth prints of uh, the gin-soaked alleyways. And this is, and yet, the reading that we had from Ephesians told us that we are God's workmanship, that he's working uh, in us. Well, sometimes he doesn't seem to work very hard. Or we don't let him. He asks us to be clean, to be different like he's different. And you know, all of us are a bit different because the way in which we respond to God is different. For some people it's like somebody switching on a light and immediately their life changes. For others, it takes years to come to a slow realisation of what God is trying to do with us. With John Newton, as I said, he, was, he, he, he measures his conversion to uh, Christianity in set, as being in 1748. But he then went back and became a captain of a slave ship. And he ran those for seven years before he decided that that was incompatible with his belief in Christ. And then, uh, first of all, had a shore-based job and then applied to become uh, a priest. And it took seven years before anybody would accept him um, to, to, to uh, a parish to be able to preach. So from his conversion in 1748, it was 1764 before he could do um, uh, anything in terms of talking to them and trying to convert them. William Wilberforce, who knows the name William Wilberforce? Yes, okay, right. 
What are we remembering for? The abolition of slavery, right? He was born in 1759. And he spent part of his childhood um, at his aunt and uncle's in London until um, his parents thought that they were having too much influence on him, partly because this guy called um, John Newton used to come round and talk to them. Uh, And they were a bit radical and a bit Methodist, which wasn't liked. So, he got dragged away. And he didn't meet John Newton again until the page that's missing from my notes. Right, excellent. Sometime between 1764, which is missing, and 1792, which is the page I've got here, when Ben, feeling that uh, he needed to change his life um, because um, he had come to a deeper realisation of what Christianity was, he went and sought John Newton out and talked to him about what he was going to do. At this time, William Wilberforce was an MP. He wrote to William Pitt, who was the Prime Minister and a friend of his from Cambridge, to say, look, I've really now come to think that there's actually something in Christianity and I ought to do something about it. So I'm thinking that I will resign from being an MP. And I'm sorry about that because, you know, our friendship has meant a lot to me. And he went to uh, John Newton and had the same discussion. And both of them told him, if you really believe this, you can do something better where you are. And so from then, um, through until 1807, when John Newton died... He worked on what he called the two great objects, one of which was the abolition of slavery, and the other one was to get people who said they were Christians to actually do something about it, and not just have it there as a name. Um, there was, uh, every king of England at that time signed this proclamation when they uh, came to the throne that said, basically, that they would uphold Christian principles and that, and that certain things were just not on. And then what happened every, every year was that that got ignored. Nobody did anything about it. There were certain things that, you know, were, were illegal, but nobody actually prosecuted anybody for breaking any of them. And so the other side of what William Wilberforce did was set up proclamation societies. They, they persuaded the king to reissue this, uh, there was George III, to reissue his proclamation and then set up these societies to actually prosecute people who did things that weren't right. So it wasn't just something that was taking place up here, it was something that was changing what they did. And it took a Let me just read you uh, what he wrote in his diary round about the time that William Wilberforce was, uh, was converted. He said, What madness is the course I am pursuing? I believe all the great truths of the Christian religion, but I am not acting as though I did. Should I die in this state, I must go into a place of misery. He saw that he'd turned his back on God, but oddly, didn't know how to turn around. But later in the diary he says, Yet I may become religious. Has God not promised his Holy Spirit on them that ask him? He recognised he couldn't do it alone, and he recognised too that his life was lie. He looked consistent with, with him and, uh, and John Newton and so on, is that they looked back on how they'd lived even after they'd said they became Christian and they were not happy with it because they hadn't done anything with what they believed and with the grace that now imbued them. So, it took from 
William Wolfe was forced, first becoming an, an MP in 1772 through to his death in 1807 until the slave trade was abolished. I could go through all the wise and wherefores, how many attempts that he made to get a bill through Parliament. Each time was quashed because people saw their own interests above what was done. During that time, in 1792, Sierra Leone was established for freed slaves when the gradual abolition bill was passed. But that was basically just an excuse to put off actually abolishing slavery. And so, in uh, whilst the slave trade bill uh, was passed, which meant that England wouldn't involve in slave trade, that didn't actually free any slaves, because they were all still out in the colonies where that didn't apply. So it wasn't until 1833, the, the year that Wilberforce died, that um, uh, slavery was abolished in the colonies. And in 1834, 800,000 slaves were freed. Do you know how many slaves there are in the world now? It's very difficult because the people who keep them tend not to keep books so they can be counted. But um, United Nations reckoned in 2007 that 27 million people around the world are slaves, half of whom are children. And we're not just talking about the things that you see of people on low wages out in the far east making your jeans and your cheap t-shirts. We're talking about people who are forcibly taken from their families and sold. It is reckoned between two and four million people are trafficked every year. A large number of those into the sex trade, and I, I imagine that most of us here don't take advantage of that. But 40% of the world's cocoa comes from the Ivory Coast. And almost all of Nestle's cocoa comes from the Ivory Coast. And Every, uh, almost every single bit of cocoa produced in the Ivory Coast is produced by slaves. Now, I know that some people among you take that seriously. And I've, in the past, tended to be a little bit dismissive and to say, look, it's easy to get fanatical about these things. It really doesn't make much difference. But over the last um, three years since um, Stop the Traffic started, Cadbury's have converted their dairy milk to fair trade. Galaxy have um, put the fair trade, uh, have put the Rainforest Alliance mark uh, on a number of their products. And even Nestle has made four finger Kit Kats fair trade. Not the two finger ones. If you want a two finger one, you've got to break a four finger one in half. And why have they done it? Have they done it because they've had some vast conversion? No, they haven't. They've done it because they're cynical and they see that actually what you do with your money makes a difference to their profits. And so I, and you can all hold me to account on this, yeah, will not eat any more chocolate unless I know where it has come from.
In the 18th century, there was a disjoint between what people believed and how they lived their lives. In the, 18th, in the 19th century, there was a disjoint between what people believed and the outward veneer of Christianity in the British Isles and the children going up chimneys and all the rest of the stuff that was there from exploitation. And in the 21st century, the world is still defined because people close their, their eyes to what's going on. In the 18th century, most people did not see any evidence of the slave trade. There were no slaves to speak of in the UK. Very, very few. You would hardly see anybody uh, um, who was a product of the slave trade. And, and then, only probably if you lived in Bristol or Liverpool. Um, maybe in London. Not in most of the country. Uh, but everybody's sugar and, uh, uh, and coffee was produced by it. And a large part of Britain's trade depended on it. And today... Um, we don't see it, we can put it out of our minds, or we can behave in um, accordance with our convictions. I pick out one thing. Yeah? There are, I'm sure, lots of other ways in which your life and my life does not reflect the calling that we have in Jesus. But there's one that's really easy to do something about, and to show that we believe in the grace that's been given to us, because it makes a difference to what we're like. We're uh, going to sing two more songs to close. And then Neil is going to offer our closing prayer because I trust him to do it. Sorry, that was just... The first one is looking to Micah chapter 6. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The challenge that we'd be given today, um, and thank you most of all for your grace and your mercy in sending Jesus to show us in his death how much you love us. Father, we know you're a God of mercy and we stand before you as sinners forgiven because of your mercy and your grace. And we see in your Son, our Lord, um, the outpouring and the, the physical manifestation of that grace and that mercy and your compassion. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Thank you that you uh, walk with us now. As we, try, as we try to be salt and light to the people around us. And we pray that you will help us to, to love mercy and to walk humbly uh, as we try and live out our lives as your followers. Help us every day of our lives uh, to be more like you and to show people what you are like. Help us to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. 
and to do it in your name so that people uh, will start to understand that your Father is a God of compassion and that uh, he wants us well, to be to, to believe in you and to be um, part of his family but also to be uh, people of compassion it's a hard thing Lord Jesus and we pray that, that you will strengthen us in this and help us um, to do what you would do Amen